This is Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. According to the most established Byzantine calendar, the world was created in the year 5,508, on the 1st of September, if you must know. And that is, of course, because God foresaw that the late Roman tax cycle would run from the 1st of September to the end of August and uh, made sure that the creation uh, aligned perfectly uh, with the subsequent um, indiction tax cycle. Now, according to another very popular calculation, the end of the world would come in the year 7,000. There are a number of biblical prophecies that suggest that that's when it would happen. Now, the year 7,000 happens to fall in what we would call 1492 AD. As we know, the East Roman Empire didn't last until 1492. It was liquidated in 1453, or at the latest, 1461. And yet, every student who is first confronted with these chronological calculations will instantly think, well, wait a minute, something else momentous happened in 1492, which was not the end of an ancient world, but the discovery by the Europeans, Columbus, of the New World, which was sort of calamitous for the people who lived in the New World, um, you know, just as, just as bad as the fall of Constantinople was for the people who lived in it. Now, from the Western European standpoint, these two events were both regarded as somewhat sort of momentous, epochal, um, and they happened within a couple of generations of each other, which means that there were people who lived through both of them, experienced both of them, heard the news about both. And this was also a pivotal moment in the emergence of a European identity or Western European, you know. And in their own way, these two events fed into the construction of that identity. In the case of the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, it was regarded in some respects as a calamity, you know, the Turks prevailing over the Greeks and thereby threatening um, the West as well. There were serious fears, apprehensions that the Ottoman expansion would continue into Italy and Hungary and beyond. But there were also many who regarded the fall of Constantinople as a kind of just or fitting, you know, punishment that the Greeks had merited in large part by um, what, what the Westerners regarded as, you know, breaking from the Catholic Church, from the Church of Rome. They didn't break from the Catholic Church, but this is how it was perceived in the West. Like, like that's what you get for not being, you know, obedient to the one true church. And for centuries of vacillating and, you know, and, you know, not joining in on the Crusades and not being sincere when you say that you want union and all of these kinds of things. So there were many who said, like, well, the Greeks kind of deserved it. And in a certain way, the fall of Constantinople was seen to justify those opinions. Like, yes, that's what you get. And it also meant that a, a particular version of Christian Roman Hellenic civilization, the one that was Greek-speaking and Orthodox and Roman, the Byzantium, was discredited. That that, that was a, a false path out of antiquity. And that the correct path was the one that led to Western modern Europe. And these are attitudes that survived almost unquestioned well into the 20th century. And even when they were subjected to criticism and critique in the 20th century and in our century, they survive and flourish still. Now, at the very same time, Europe was colonizing the New World, which it had, quote, discovered and proceeded to exploit pretty brutally. Now that story is also familiar, but it also served to validate the emerging notion of a Western European supremacy over not only the past, which is represented by the kind of rejection of the medieval and the oriental, but also its conquest and ownership of the future. That 
Europe, Europeans would expand into the New World and form it in their own image, and that what they would do there would be sort of decisive for the future history of the world. Correctly, <laughs> they were correct in that, though this was a project and not a prophecy. So we have these two epochal events of the end of empires, the East Roman Empire and the Aztec and Inca empires, standing as landmarks in the emergence of a new European order. In different asymmetrical ways to be sure, but symbolically potent ones and complementary ones. My thinking on these issues has been immensely clarified by a book written by my guest. My guest today is Eleni Kefala, who is a senior lecturer in Spanish at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. And her book is called The Conquered, Byzantium and America on the Cusp of Modernity. It not only explores the issues that I have summarized just now, but it also looks at these encounters from the standpoint of the conquered, that is, to the indigenous you know, Mexicans and Romans, Romay, these events did not appear in the same way as they did to Western Europeans. They got the short end of the stick. And the book also examines two traditions of lament, um, a Greek poem about the fall of the city and some indigenous Mexican texts about the complex events that led to the fall of the Aztec Empire. And it compares them and draws out their different coordinates. Looking ahead, we can see how the fall of Constantinople slotted kind of more easily into, especially into later you know, nationalist projects, especially um, in, in the, after the formation of the modern Greek state. But the events that led to the fall of Tenochtitlan and, uh, did not. They're just not as easy to turn into rallying cries uh, for reasons that are examined in the book. Anyway, this is all fascinating material, and I was very glad to have read this and to bring someone onto the podcast who works primarily on modernity and brings a comparative both Spanish and um, native angle uh, to, in the comparison to Byzantine texts. And it also took me back to my grad school years when I actually read a lot about pre-Columbian civilizations uh, just out of curiosity. Um, and it was really nice to go back and revisit some of the incredible names <laughs> that their gods had. Anyway, without any more delay, here's my conversation with Eleni, and thanks again to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Eleni, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I had a great deal of fun reading your book. I know it's not about a fun topics, but um, it took me back to my grad student years. Um, there were a, a couple of years when I, I did some pretty intensive reading in pre-Columbian studies, just out of curiosity. And I had started, you know, with, with Prescott, <laughs> the history of the conquest of Mexico and Peru, whom I took to be a kind of, you know, sort of Gibbon-esque starting point, you know. And then I worked forward into other, you know, more recent scholarship and all that. And I was really, really intensely fascinated by, you know, Aztecs and Incas, to use outdated terminology, but so that everybody knows, you know, who we're talking about. Um, and I just found fascinating, especially that kind of that point where the end of Byzantine civilization almost touches the sort of European conquest, the discovery and conquest of the new world. Um, and it's just fascinating to see how your book tries to sort of bridge that, those two worlds um, in, in that way. Before we start, can I just ask you to tell our audience sort of a little bit about your intellectual background and profile? Because you're coming at these questions from a very different standpoint than most of the guests here. So where, where are you coming from? 
Well, I did my undergraduate studies in Cyprus back in the 1990s, and that was in uh, Byzantine and modern Greek studies. <laughs> uh, okay. So that's my link to Byzantium, really. Uh, then I went on to um, um, read European literature um, for a master's degree uh, at Cambridge, followed by a PhD in comparative literature. And this is basically what I'm doing uh, now. Um, the, 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 my PhD was on actually on, on 20th century literature. Uh, Argentine and Greek literatures. Uh, but since then, I've been working in a Spanish department. So uh, <laughs> I teach Latin American literature and culture. And this book um, has been a great opportunity for me to actually go back to my undergraduate years, um, you know, in, in a way, and link what I do now in at St. Andrews in the Spanish department, Latin American literature, post-colonial studies, um, and, uh, and Byzantium, uh, and obviously I had to go back to the early colonial uh, period, um, and, and, and look at uh, um, how modernity saw itself with relation to those others, uh, in this case, the Byzantines and the, and the pre-Columbians. So this is how this book really uh, came into being, uh, sort of combining different interests of mine. Yeah, that's a really fascinating combination. And, you know, it's too bad that that kind of trajectory is so rare. So I really like people to, to bring these different civilizations into dialogue the way you do, uh, or to find common themes, right, by which to discuss them both. Like that's in some ways more interesting. Um, so. You deal a lot with pre-Columbian material in this book. So like, have you studied pre-Columbian languages? I, I couldn't tell from the book because you, you, know, you, you do use, you know, some <laughs> vocabulary and grammar. So how, how deep did you go into that? Yeah. I wish, I wish I did. Uh, when I started studying uh, the, the Aztec songs, um, I had no idea of actually, no knowledge of, of um, um, indigenous, um, pre-Columbian indigenous languages. Obviously now it's still spoken today um, mm -hmm. in Mexico, in parts of Mexico. But uh, so obviously I had to, you know, I had to rely on, on translations, uh, an English translation of the songs by uh, John Bierhost, uh, which was done in the 1980s. And I was fortunate enough to have a more recent translation in Spanish this time by um, uh, Miguel Leon Portilla. So I could, I could, I could check uh, one translation against the other. But when, when it was important for my uh, comparative approach to actually look at the uh, at Nahuatl, the, the, the language in which uh, those songs uh, were written, uh, I worked with dictionaries and, and grammars, Nahuatl dictionaries and grammars. So oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining little hieroglyphs. And... No, no, I know they were <laughs> well, written. Actually, in... they're in, in alphabetized form. Yes, so yes, they're yes. written in the Roman alphabet, yes. <laughs> yes, otherwise I just classify everything under like Hittite hieroglyphic and sort of leave it at that. Um, now we should say, and you mentioned this in the beginning of your book, that there's one place in the world where these two fields are combined, uh, and that is Dumbarton Oaks. And I think that's the one time where we met was there, right? Indeed, indeed. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that, because it's a fascinating place for that reason. Yes, the Barton Oaks is truly unique. I mean, I, I don't think of any other place uh, which combines Byzantine and pre-Columbian studies in the way that the Barton Oaks does, right? For the simple reason, of course, that these two disciplines are seemingly unrelated, right? I, I mean, when you study um, the Aztecs, when you study the Inca, when you study the Maya, uh, you don't necessarily think of the Byzantines um, in the way that you may do when you study, say, the medieval West uh, or uh, Islamic and Jewish cultures. Mm. Uh, there are, of course, libraries and museums around the world where you can find books, um, uh, you know, about these civilizations, um, or you know, you can find you know places, museums where you can find artifacts coming from those uh, civilizations, manuscripts. Um, but you won't find a research, a research institution uh, focusing, specializing on these two disciplines. Um, and the reason we have them there um, is because of the founders of the Barton Oaks, the, the Blisses. They were interested, they were art collectors, uh, they were inspired by early 20th century antiquarianism. Uh, and by the time they donated the, their estate and collections to Harvard in 1940, uh, they had already set the stage for a, you know, a first class um, center for the study of these civilizations. 
the interesting thing is that uh, at Dumbarton Oaks for, for decades, um, scholars from both disciplines have been uh, living together literally and studying together and they have been following each other's um, uh, research papers, uh, public lectures, um, but 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 the combinations in there in you know for many it was still kind of um, um, odd. Uh, what did you know? What do these civilizations have in common apart from you know sharing a, the same roof at the Barton Oaks? So really, that was a question for me. It was a research challenge. Um, could those strangers, Byzantine and pre-conquest, let's say, America, uh, share something more than a roof at the Barton Oaks? So I, I was trying to answer that question uh, while writing this book. Right. And um, I think a shout out here is appropriate for Sabina McCormick. Um, this is a, a professor I had at Michigan, again, in grad school in the 90s. And she, she was a remarkable scholar who had like two tracks and she would write like a book on late antiquity and then a book on the Andean civilization, now that mostly post-conquest, but uh, you know around that time, and she was remarkably um, adept at, in in both of those fields, and you know produced very important books in both fields. It's a remarkable combination. And what I learned from her, among other things, is that the Spanish, especially, especially missionaries and writers and so on, who went to the New World, had in their sort of mental apparatus the way they understood things like, you know, religion and the state and what is heresy, what is superstition, what is proper religion and all that came from late antique sources, especially the Theodosian Code and St. Augustine, people like that. They were like literally transporting categories from the, you know, later Roman Empire, early Byzantium to the New World. Um, and so I had some interesting exchanges at Dumbarton Oaks, in fact, two years ago when there was a paper on, uh, on, on you know, pre-Columbian religion. And, and the, the scholar who was giving the paper was working through these categories, but like didn't know they were like all laid out in the Theodosian code. <laughs> so anyway, that, that was just an interesting, uh, you know. Very interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Points for Zabina. Uh, so let's try to uh, bring these civilizations into closer contact. And why don't we start with the, the prophecy or the, the calculation of 1492. Uh, what does this mean? Because it's such a fascinating coincidence, I guess. It is fascinating. Um, I mean, I, I came across it while while writing the book myself, and I was really struck by it. So um, uh, the, 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 there's a number of serendipities, as I call them, that you know that, 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 mm. that, that we talk about in the book. But I think the most striking one is this prophecy. Um, I mean, we're all more or less familiar with Columbus's story, right? He left the Canary Islands uh, in September 1492 in search of spices, or actually in search of um, a Western sea route uh, to the spices of the Far East. And his arrival in the Caribbean five weeks uh, later symbolically inaugurates the end of the world as it was known up, uh, up until that moment. So Columbus's journey across the Atlantic paves the way for uh, Europe's expansion in the so-called uh, New World or West Indies. Um, in other words, it opens the way for the conquest of America and the rise of Eurocentric modernity. Uh, but what is perhaps less known outside Byzantine studies is that that year, the year 1492, held particular importance, particular significance for the Byzantines. Uh, they actually dreaded that year. Yes. They, you know, according to their calendar, their Orthodox Christian calendar, 1492 corresponded very interestingly to the year 7000 since the creation of the world. Uh, and it was that year they believed that the world would come to an end. Um, so interestingly, if we look at the Byzantine prophecy or calculation, as you say, from a secular point of view, uh, and retrospectively, of course, the imperial city of Byzantium may have fallen into the hands of the Ottoman Turks just a few decades earlier in 1453. But the prophecy eerily connects the, the old and new world uh, in ways that are far reaching, actually, and, and, and quite profound. Yes, and I imagine that there were many people who either experienced the fall of Constantinople in 1453 or, or were alive at the time and obviously heard about it, and who then heard um, about what was going on in the new world uh, four decades later. You know, I've, always, I, I've continued to be fascinated by this in the sense that I keep telling myself that I should track down the first 
people in the sort of broader East Roman Orthodox world to hear about the new world? And like, what did sense did, did they make of it, you know, coming from their background and, you know, their, their mental frameworks that they had inherited from Byzantium? Like, how did they process that kind of information? But then I, you know, I, I never actually get around to doing it. Well, I imagine, yeah. sorry, what, yes. what's that? That's a very interesting project I'm saying. Yeah, the, the, the problem is that there were so many of them in Western Europe by that point um, that it would be hard to separate out, you know, like Greek speakers or Orthodox people in under the Ottoman Empire or in Western Europe. And who for all we know, they were on Columbus's ships. I don't even know. Anyway. Um, OK, so let's now get to some sort of more um, involved somatic connections here. So part of your argument links the perceptions of Byzantium on the one hand and of pre-Columbian America on the other in terms of this emerging Western European identity, right? And empire and colonialism. Uh, so, and, and you call it this sort of narcissistic modernity at one point, in your, and, and rightly so, um, in the sense that Byzantium and pre-Columbian um, America represent different you know, others for the emerging European modernity. Can you unpack that a little yes. bit? So how do you see them as linked? Yes. I mean, we, we've just talked about the year 1492. So prophecies and other sorts of serendipities playfully connect Byzantium and pre-conquest America. Uh, but modernity really is what brings them together in a meaningful uh, and enlightening manner, in my opinion, at least. I mean, it really provides the background uh, for the comparison and also the reason why such comparative approaches, um, I believe, may not just be justified, but, but perhaps also necessary to understand the phenomenon that we call uh, modernity and its narcissistic gestures uh, and may it may also help us understand our own perceptions of Byzantium in America today. Uh, and this is because Byzantium in America have been instrumental in the rise of European modernity, both materially and epistemically. I, I mean, through their knowledge systems. Um, in the case of America, for instance, think of the indigenous material wealth uh, ending up at the hands of the colonizers. Mm. Think also of mines like uh, Potosí in nowadays Bolivia, I mean, this is where three quarters of the world's silver uh, came from in the period spanning from the 16th to the 18th centuries. Um, think of slavery as free labor. Think of the rich knowledge systems of numerous indigenous civilizations where, which were exploited uh, by the Europeans to their advantage. Uh, think of the extraordinary variety of, of domesticated crops uh, that America gave to the world, changing forever the, the global food landscape. I mean, think of beans corn, avocado, <laughs> potatoes, tomatoes, I mean, you name it, right? Right, right? So with the conquest of America, Europe essentially goes global. This is the rise of modern capitalism. Now, in the case of Byzantium, we have a civilization that existed for over a millennium and one that displayed extraordinary cultural and epistemic uh, achievements in so many areas, uh, medicine, healthcare, mathematics, physics, astronomy, optics, warfare, education, war, et cetera, et cetera. So Byzantium's contribution to the Renaissance, to, to early modernity um, is well known, right? Um, we have the cultural exchange between Byzantine, Islamic and Jewish traditions. And of course, Islam's contribution to modernity uh, has long been acknowledged and quite rightly so. Uh, then we have the numerous documented diplomatic and mercantile contacts between the Latin West and Byzantium, which of course served as a springboard um, for the exchange of culture um, uh, capital in the Middle Ages. And then of course, we have the Latin sack of Constantinople in 1204. Uh, and with that, we have a direct migration of Greek knowledge of manuscripts uh, to, to Western Europe. And then in the 14th century, and especially in the 15th century, uh, with the fall of Constantinople, we also have humanists uh, from Byzantium migrating to the Latin West, often carrying, uh, so to speak, Byzantine knowledge quite literally in their hands. Uh, so those people taught there, they led the groundwork for, for the Italian Renaissance, they taught uh, Petrarch, they taught uh, Boccaccio, they taught um, uh, prominent members of the Florentine society and, and many other important um, figures of the Italian uh, Renaissance. So this is really how we should be seeing Byzantium and America. But how did the moderns see them? 
So the modern soul would, uh, that, that's my argument. The modern soul world was external in time and what was external in, 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 in space uh, as dark and retrograde. Mm. Uh, the period of the Middle Ages was external to modernity in time, while, while non-European cultures like uh, the pre-Columbian uh, civilizations, pre-Columbian America, were external to modernity in, in space. Um, and perhaps I should, I, should, I, should, I should distinguish here between uh, early or first modernity, which refers to the Renaissance and the colonization of, of America in the 16th century. And we can perhaps reserve the term second modernity uh, for, uh, in this case, for the 18th century enlightenment. Now, um, early moderns like, for instance, Filippo uh, Villani, uh, who was uh, a 14th century chronicler from Florence, um, early moderns like Villani saw the period that we now call Middle Ages as the abyss of darkness. Villani, Villani was actually praising uh, Dante uh, for, for, mm. for summoning poetry from the depth of darkness. I mean, the, the, mm. the phrase that he used in Latin uh, was um, abyssus tenebrarum. So for the early moderns like Villani, who were interested in, in, um, in, in the rebirth of Greco-Roman antiquity, the, the time that had elapsed since then was viewed negatively, right? Now, the second case, and I'm referring to uh, what stood external uh, to modernity in space, the second case is um, that of historical colonialism, in this case, uh, Iberian colonialism. So for Columbus, the, the indigenous people uh, lacked religion. This is what he wrote in his diaries uh, when he reached the, the Caribbean. Um, in, in October, um, um, Spanish chroniclers of the time uh, portrayed uh, the indigenous peoples as savage or, or childlike or, or immature. And of course, we know that these stereotypes uh, lived on into the Enlightenment. Um, so here, here, you, here you have the, the narcissistic gesture of modernity, which defined itself in relation to its others, both in time Middle Ages and in space, in this case, um, pre-Columbian America. And Enlightenment in particular conceived of itself um, as a new age, traveling full speed uh, on the track of infinite progress. So whatever lay outside was considered belated, static, regressive, or simply inferior. And this is um, the rational myth of modernity. Uh, this, this phrase, um, comes from the contemporary Argentine-Mexican uh, philosopher Enrique Dussel. Um, so the rational myth of modernity uh, is a narrative according to which European modernity was superior to what came before it and, and what lay outside. Um, so Byzantium came to stand for what I call the rational myth of modernity at home, while America stood for the irrational myth of modernity abroad. Um, I mean, despite their extraordinary epistemic and cultural achievements, and despite their very real contributions to the rise uh, and consolidation of modernity, Byzantium and America were ultimately inferiorized uh, by the moderns. Um, uh, and they also became, of course, unlikely partners in modernity. And, and this is something that I'm particularly interested in. Uh, I'm, I'm actually uh, currently completing a, a project on this topic on Byzantium, America, and, and modernity. Yeah. So will take their resources because they're useful, but ideologically we have to cast them as sort of inferior. And it, there are some interesting parallels in the way this plays out. So for example, and continues to this day um, in, in Byzantine studies and certainly into the 20th century, and you can even find some classicists today who believe this, it's like, oh, well, all of the classical tradition in Byzantium, it was just dead weight. It was like in a cold storage waiting for Western Europeans to come and activate it because those Byzantines don't really understand all this stuff. They were just keeping it for us. Um, and there's similar sort of kind of homologous um, ideological treatment of just like the land and its resources in the new world. Like, well, they weren't really using it as efficiently as, you know, they, they didn't have concepts of property so they couldn't really have owned it. And you keep hearing all of these things. Yeah. Like, I it's like on right-wing radio as you're driving across the United States. I do hear these things. Uh, it's, it's amazing. Completely, completely. I mean, I think that, I mean, these are the rational myths of modernity, of the Enlightenment in particular, if you want, that are still with us. I mean, uh, obviously, today, we, we know about the contribution of pre-Columbian America to the rise of modernity. Uh, I mean, we're not blind to that. Yeah. Um, the Western Middle Ages also, the image of the Western Middle Ages uh, has been slowly uh, restored, if you want. Uh, but Byzantium, in my opinion, at least, despite the very, you know, amazing developments that you have in Byzantine 
studies in the recent decades, in the recent years, this negative image of Byzantium, uh, which in the 19th century uh, fed into Orientalist views of it as passive, uh, in many respects still, uh, still holds sway of our collective consciousness. You know, when I was reading your chapter on that, I thought of uh, a single place where your two themes, sort of the, the myth in the past and the myth abroad come together. And that's in Machiavelli. Because um, Machiavelli is writing, you know, his new political thought, right? Like it's this break from the past. So he's creating a new modern European politics, breaking from the Roman tradition of the past and, and the Greek especially. But the frontispiece of, I, th I think it's the discourses on Livy, shows Columbus's ship sailing to the new world. And he's using that as an image of how his thought will carry, you know, your modernity into a new, uh, anyway. And I just this fascinating mm -hmm. way where he combines these two things, repudiating the past and, and, and moving to the new world. Anyway, uh, sorry. Just, um, so let's turn to the text that you discuss specifically in the book. Um, there are two, let's say there are two traditions of lament on the part of the conquered, and your book is called The Conquered uh, for that reason. Um, and they come from very different, um, you know, cultural backgrounds. Uh, so let's talk about them in turn and, and sort of find some of the common themes. So tell us a little bit about the post-Byzantine, well, poem or song or lament or whatever you want to call it, um, that, that you study in the book. Uh, so what is it and, and what themes do you extract from it? Right. So the, the poem I discuss in the book belongs to the, the long and rich tradition of Greek laments for the fall of cities. Uh, the, mm. the tradition of laments for the for the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople uh, is particularly rich, actually. So there are laments which are set in prose, um, in which case they're called monodies, and there are laments which are set in verse, uh, as the one we have here, the, 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 the poem. This is a learned poem, but you can also have folk songs. Um, for the fall of, uh, of cities and, and Constantinople in particular. Now, the poem I study is called uh, Lament for Constantinople. The, the Greek title is Anakalima, uh, this Constantinople is. Um, and as I've said, it belongs to the learned tradition. In other words, it doesn't belong to the oral tradition of folk songs, although actually, interestingly, it shares with them many elements. Um, it, it has many elements from folk poetry, uh, especially um, uh, it shares many elements with folk songs on the fall of Constantinople and with folk songs for the dead. Uh, we call them miroloya uh, in, in Greek. For instance, the, the language used in the poem uh, is often very close to the vernacular we find in the folk songs, mm -hmm. but the poet at the same time uses an archaizing language that you wouldn't find uh, in folk poetry. Um, so um, at some point in the poem, thinking of, of themes and what's happening in this uh, very interesting text, actually, at some point in the poem, we come across the Byzantine emperor, Constantinos Paleologos, who took part in the defense of the city. We know that during the Ottoman siege. And when uh, the city falls, the emperor in the poem uh, sees his allies abandoning him. Um, and among them, there are Cretans. Uh, and Paleologos does not want to be seized by the enemy. Uh, he calls Mehmed uh, the second and, and his men dogs, uh, skilia in Greek. But he wants to be mourned by his fellow uh, Romei in Crete. Uh, and of course, the Cretans in this case uh, stand for all the Romei, uh, all the Greek-speaking uh, Orthodox people living in areas outside Byzantium. So uh, in the poem, the emperor pleads with uh, the Cretans to cut his head and take it to Crete so that people can mourn and commemorate his death. Now, what is interesting is that in his lament for his own death, uh, the Byzantine emperor stipulates specific funeral practices like for instance, weeping and, 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 and more importantly, breast beating, uh, which uh, were common uh, and in many cases still are uh, across the Greek world. Uh, the poem also presents a beautiful dialogue between uh, two boats, uh, which, uh, which meet at a nearby island, at the island of Denedos. Now, one of them, one of the boats comes from Constantinople, uh, bringing the evil and bitter news that's what we uh, that's what we that's 
this is what we did in the poem. Uh, so the evil and, and bitter news of the conquest, the dialogue, of course, lends the poem a strong sense of immediacy and performativity. I mean, imagine yourself, Anthony, sitting in an amphitheater, watching this bizarre conversation between two boats and faulting in front of your eyes and telling you that, mm. you know, the city, <laughs> the city has fallen. Yeah. Um, now, the language used is, is very dramatic. Um, and so are the metaphors that the poet employs uh, to convey the extent of the catastrophe. Uh, the poet draws on, on imagery of natural disasters, like lightning, like hail, like storm. Um, and we learn that the city is, is a cursed land, uh, that it has been struck by lightning. So there's a lot of drama uh, going on uh, in this part of the poem. But the important thing is that all this drama is channeled through uh, familiar aesthetic traditions and themes, uh, like ancient tragedy, obviously, uh, funerary practices, ritual lamentation, the long tradition of laments for cities, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this, in this way, the reader um, or the audience uh, can emotively identify and perhaps figuratively even participate um, in the events. Um, now, the theme of the ship um, that is used here is also very important uh, because islands like Crete, islands like Cyprus, where, by the way, uh, the poem was most likely uh, composed, Islands learned about the dreadful events uh, of the conquest of Constantinople from arriving ships. But of course, there is more into the, uh, the poet's choice uh, of this particular metaphor. In Greek antiquity, for instance, a departing ship uh, or a ship in tempest, uh, like the one we have in, in the poem, uh, represented historical change uh, and was a metaphor of the state. On the other hand, the ship is also present in folk poetry. So you see how these you know, different traditions are coming together in the poem. But the dialogue between the two boats is unique to uh, this particular poem. In folk songs for the dead and in historical songs, birds, uh, birds not boats, often bring the news, speaking in human voice. Uh, we even have examples where birds come from the underworld to bring news. But in the poem, the bird is replaced with the boat, which of course is loaded with uh, connotations of change and, and tragedy um, for all these reasons. Um, oh, plus I should also mention this. I mean, it is very interesting that um, uh, although the second part of the poem uh, displays uh, many more uh, archaisms, um, and in this sense, is, it distances itself from folk poetry, from the context of folk songs, at least at the level of language. Uh, the poet once again aligns himself with folk tradition at the very end, when he blames not only the enemy, the Turks, uh, for the loss of Constantinople, but also God. Uh, specifically, we, we, we read that it's because of the angels and saints that have abandoned Constantinople and its people that we have this tragedy. Uh, in learned laments, interestingly, um, particularly those written by the clergy, the blame rests with the people. It is because people have been sin sinful right. and therefore they have been punished by God. But right. in Greek folk poetry, <laughs> this is quite interesting, people are almost always innocent victims of overwhelming catastrophes. Uh, so responsibility almost always falls uh, on the masters or, or even God himself. And this is what happens in the poem. So the poem is layered with meanings coming from an impressive range of traditions, uh, while it also um, shows a considerable, a considerable degree of historical accuracy, which you don't have really in folk poetry. And of course, all this makes it uh, such an interesting text. Yeah, not just historical accuracy, but a concern for its own public setting and for the historical importance of the events described. In other words, Definitely. as yeah, as a lament, it's it's less focused on sort of the, the private aspects, you know, sorrow, you know, the funeral arrangements, these kinds of things that you sometimes find, but for the historical significance of what has just happened and its impact on everybody around, um, it, it coins this sort of wonderful term, Turkopolis for Constantinople now. <laughs> um, yeah, and this points to a kind of collective experience. It's like trying to get at that, which I think is kind of what you're trying to get at too in the book, um, mm -hmm. the experience of trauma uh, that the conquered are are facing at this, at this pivotal moment in history. Um, so how do you understand social trauma in this context? Uh, I mean, you you devote some some pages to it. How is it constructed and transmitted or how do you see it? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, theorists of, of collective trauma stress, they emphasize that a traumatic event, no matter how devastating it may be, uh, no matter how profoundly it may affect uh, you know, an individual or a group, it does not automatically uh, become cultural trauma um, because, uh, because cultural trauma is socially constructed, as you've said. So in order to have cultural trauma, you need social crisis to become cultural crisis. Now, of course, the question is, how do you do this? Well, um, through a trauma process undertaken by um, what we call career groups, who will represent a social crisis as a fundamental threat to a collectivity or to the target audience, if you want. So among curry groups, you may find intellectuals, you may find politicians, you may find journalists, but you may also find artists and writers and poets um, who will produce uh, narratives of collective pain. Now, a career group will have to project their trauma claim to the target audience. And to do this successfully, uh, they would need to address four important questions. Um, the, the, the nature of the pain, uh, that is what has happened, um, who is the victim, who is the perpetrator, and crucially, what is the relation between the victim and the target audience, right? So the crisis must really be represented effectively as a shared one, as a fundamental threat to the collectivity. Uh, Kari groups also draw on the available symbolic and aesthetic traditions, uh, as well as on the specificities of the historical situation uh, in order to successfully establish uh, and then disseminate uh, their trauma claim. And once, and once the cultural trauma is established, uh, this is quite important actually, it has to be nurtured continuously in order to preserve its status as, as cultural trauma. So psychic trauma as such, does not necessarily correspond to cultural trauma. In fact, events that in their own time may not be considered uh, cultural trauma, uh, they could be retrospectively projected as such if historical circumstances allow it or, or even demanded, I would say. So for this reason, one needs not to directly experience the events to consider cultural trauma as, as their own. I mean, uh, right. Mariana Hirsch has, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term post-memory, for instance, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, um, a very helpful in this case. Post-memory refers to the memory, um, uh, to the experiences of, of the Holocaust remembered by subsequent generations that did not directly experience uh, uh, those horrifying events, except indirectly uh, through images, through, um, uh, through stories, through behaviors. So such experiences, of course, are conveyed to subsequent generations, but also to contemporaries with no direct experience of the events. A and these events are transmitted to them um, in such a profoundly effective way that they appear to almost constitute personal memories. And I mean, my generation in Cyprus is actually a prime example of post-memory uh, mm -hmm. thinking, thinking of it. I mean, although we did not uh, experience the events of, of, of the Turkish uh, military invasion of the island in 1974, because we were born later, we, we carried them as cultural trauma because they were conveyed to us in a profoundly effective way through stories, through behaviors, through images, et cetera, et cetera. And, and perhaps more crucially, uh, through state institutions. Right. Now. The Greek poem and the two Nahuatl uh, songs um, project their trauma claims about the fall of uh, the imperial cities of Constantinople and Tenochtitlan uh, in a profoundly effective way, both of them, uh, sorry, all three of them, um, by drawing on the available symbolic traditions and on, on, on historical circumstances. Um, well, I, I have talked about the, the Greek poem a bit. Uh, in, in the case of the, of the Nahuatl songs, they draw, for instance, on the pre-Columbian tradition of songs of sorrow uh, or war songs, mm -hmm. um, which in the pre-conquest period, uh, the Aztecs, or really we should be calling them uh, Mexica, uh, the Mexica elite would learn at school. Um, and, and the songs were traditionally accompanied by drumming, dancing, and, and possibly, uh, possibly uh, some sort of acting. So... Um, the two now uh, laments uh, also drawn on the pre-conquest tradition of ritual sacrifices. Uh, therefore, their trauma claims, as in the case of the Greek poem, uh, are conveyed through recognizable traditions, 
um, and also all three texts address the four fundamental fundamental questions I referred to earlier. Uh, so in theory, at least, their trauma claims uh, had the potential to be widely disseminated and, and achieve the status of, of cultural trauma. Yeah, so before we discuss the, um, the Mashida uh, traditions in more detail, why don't you tell us a little bit more about how those survive? Uh, because the Spanish conquest sort of obliterated a lot of the you know, existing culture. Um, and so how do we have those texts? Um, like just the, even the mechanics of their transmission, I, I found fascinating. Mm-hmm. Well, the two laments are actually preserved in a 16th, late 16th century manuscript, uh, which uh, is a Jesuit um, copy of a Franciscan original, and the original uh, is now lost. Uh, the laments are part of um, uh, a collection called Mexica songs uh, in Spanish. They're known by their Spanish name, Cantares Mexicanos. Um, and this is a corpus of 91 songs, mainly collected uh, from the 1550s to, to the 1570s. Some of them actually were um, collected um, a bit later in the 1580s. Uh, and they were collected from indigenous informants by indigenous scholars at the, um, uh, who were working under the, the supervision of the uh, Franciscan friar Bernardino de Sagún at the Colegio de Santa Cruz in Tlatelolco. Um, the Colegio was founded by the Franciscans um, in 1536, uh, and it was located in Tlatelolco, which was the twin city of Tenochtitlan uh, on the island of Mexico. Now, the manuscript, um, which contains uh, the songs, seems to have been forgotten until uh, it was rediscovered in the uh, second part of the 19th century in the National Library of Mexico. Um, and, and, and the songs were written in Nahuatl, uh, but as we said, uh, as I mentioned earlier, using the Roman alphabet and, and following the rules of, of, of Castilian orthography. Yes, and there were some Spanish words in them. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> and I was looking at your transcriptions and sort of baffled because I recognized some words, but others were just, you know, completely foreign. Um, anyways, it's fascinating text to look at. Um, and I was also fascinated by the, the very deep analysis that you offer of these texts and specifically of their social background, and th- which was much more complicated than the more straightforward case of the Turks conquering Constantinople, uh, though even in that case, there are always questions about the role of the Latins, the, the Western Europeans, and you know what, what they did or didn't do um, at that moment. Um, but in the sort of Mexican case, it's much more complicated uh, because it, it, the, the lament is not presented as, a, uh, it doesn't present a catastrophe that is straightforwardly suffered by you know, indigenous powers at the hands of the Spaniards. Mm-hmm. Actually, the Spaniards are kind of like marginalized a little bit, which actually kind of tallies with the way the events played out. So can you talk a little bit about that dynamic and how you see it playing out in the trauma? Absolutely. I mean, as you say, the the, the two historical situations are different, are very different. Um, and their understanding or their projection of what has happened is, is totally different. So in early colonial Mexico, um, uh, well, actually, no, the, the, the notion of watershed, let's say, um, was alien uh, to indigenous peoples, right? Uh, to uh, the indigenous worldview, if you want. So for the Nawas, uh, who had a cyclical notion of time, uh, one thing was regularly uh, replaced by another. So the fall of the Mexica empire and subsequently, of course, the, the epidemics uh, brought to, to Mexico by, by the Europeans were seen as part of a, of a historical sequence, let's say, a sequence of conflicts, of natural disasters. Um, so the now as expected periods of disorder, um, they thought of them as unavoidable. And this, is actual, this actually allowed them to, to read the events of the conquest through that lens uh, as a way to cope with change. Mm. So it is in this context that uh, they developed what Jorge Clor de Alva uh, has called a, a counter narrative of continuity. Uh, basically, the Nahuas rejected the Spanish narrative of discontinuity between pagan past and Christian present, um, and instead projected a continuum, um, a, a historical and cultural continuum between before and after the fall of, uh, of the, the imperial city of Tenochtitlan. Um, 
well, this of course did not mean business as usual, right? Mm. But it is telling, it is telling of, of the Nawa worldview and also of the colonial Nawa nobility who like members of the, of the Byzantine elite actually managed to, to carve out a niche in, in the colonial order. A second reason why the loss of the empire was not seen uh, by many indigenous people as a catastrophe is because actually many of them were dissatisfied with the Mexica, with the, with the Aztec empire, and they wanted to topple it. Uh, so uh, we know, for instance, that the conquest uh, occurred not because of the exceptionality of Cortes, of Hernán Cortes and the Spaniards, uh, who at the final stage of the siege uh, were no more than 900 men, but because of the indigenous allies of Hernán Cortés, and, and, and there were some 200,000 warriors. So there you have it. Uh, the many indigenous people, uh, for many indigenous people, the fall of Mexico was um, a victory. And yeah. many of them went on to become conquistadors themselves, right? So the, 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 the context is totally different here to that of uh, the, um, Byzantium. Yeah, there were very few Spaniards involved in those events. Um, and the Aztec Empire was, as far as I can tell, very unpopular among its subjects. And the first chance they got, they were like, yes, we'll take Like many down. empires, like many empires. <laughs> yes, yes. And again, I'm struck by the similarity of, of, this, of this dynamic in the sense that, so you mentioned that the Spanish writers like to present this narrative of discontinuity, that there was this, you know, pagan past um, and now these lands have been enlightened with Christianity and there are no more pagans, you know, they're all converted and it's just a thing of the past. This is exactly the narrative of, you know, Christian triumphalism in late antiquity too. And all, you know, even the Theodosian Code and the emperors are saying, well, now that paganism is a thing of the past and they're like Christian minority empire at that mm -hmm, point, mm -hmm. right? And, um, you know, non-Christians, in the same way, they survived for centuries afterwards, mm -hmm. and you know they they drew on their traditions to do exactly the same thing. That you know, well, this is in fact <laughs> some of them called the Christians like the age of the Titans has returned, <laughs> but you know the gods will prevail or something like that. Anyway, uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, so do you see how, how does pre-Columbian religion survive in these poems? Yes, I mean. In the in the two songs and in and in many others um, in that corpus of songs, the Cantares Mexicanos, as well as in other colonial now texts, as a matter of fact, indigenous concepts of, of divinity uh, are interwoven uh, with Christianity. Um, so past and present, in other words, are intertwined in that sense. Um, through cultural hybridity, many aspects of uh, of the indigenous traditions would survive throughout the colonial period and not just in Mexico, throughout Latin America. Um, when it comes to the songs uh, accompanied by music and dance, the missionaries uh, were very suspicious of them mm. for that reason. Uh, Sagun, that uh, I mentioned earlier, Sagun, for instance, complained that the songs were very obscure, that only the indigenous people understood them, and that many of them were surrounded by errors and, her and heresies. This is what um, uh, he says. Um, there is a very rich uh, literature on, on cultural hybridity in, in colonial America, uh, of course. Louis Burkhardt's work uh, on, on Nawa Christianity, for instance, is very, is very interesting, very informative. She shows how the missionaries uh, had to content themselves with a hardly orthodox Nawa Christianity mm -hmm. and how colonial Nawas had to become just Christian enough yes, to survive yes. <laughs> in the colonial exactly. era, right? without sacrificing their basic uh, moral and theological orientation. Uh, and we, we do see this in the, in the songs. We, we do see, um, uh, for instance, in one of the songs, which, which is called Uexotzincayot, meaning Uexotzinca piece, um, that contains both Spanish and now words for God. Um, we have the Spanish word Dios. Uh, you mentioned Spanish words earlier, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so we have Dios uh, appearing alongside the Nahuatl term Ipalnemoani, which means he by whom he, one lives. And this generic deity epithet is often used in other colonial Nahua texts with reference to, to the Aztec gods Huitzilopochtli and Tezcatlipoca. Um, so in this song and elsewhere, uh, the two words, Dios and Ipalnemoani, are used in, in such a way so that indigenous notions of divinity could appear to be compatible with Christianity. And this, of course, was a surviving strategy. 
This sounds so familiar again. I'm sure the, it, does. it does from the early Byzantine context. It's the same dynamic mm-hmm. where at some point Christian authorities are like, well, good enough. Like, we, yes, we yes. have statues of Zeus everywhere. We have all these temples. We have people believing and saying all kinds of things, but good enough. Like, yeah. we let's take that. Yes. Yes. We, like, it, it, superficially Christianized enough that we can pretend that it's okay and we carry on. Yeah, we, yeah. 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 And, and you see the same thing in many of the texts from that period um, that you know, these vague references to, you know, the divinity where, you know, you, you don't specify what, and so everybody can just read whatever they want into it. Yeah, um, this is this is the mechanism. This is the mechanism of cultural production. I mean, regardless, you know, your historical context, yeah. really. Um, so I wanted to, so wrapping up, I just wanted to come back to the question of social trauma because these two events were remembered very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and their resonance is very different down to this day. And, and so I wanted to say that, so when we say that social trauma is constructed, it, it opens the door to, you know, let's say observers who are, don't necessarily have the best of intentions with, with a desire to, um, you know, deny it. Right. Right. So, and I've faced this in the case of the Fourth Crusade, right? In, in 1204, when the Latins conquered Constantinople, and there was an attempt by apologists of the Crusades who, who exist today to deny that, oh, well, this was no big deal. <laughs> and looking at the Latin sources, arguing that there's no social trauma here. Now, there happens to be a lot of, you know, in, you know, indigenous, as it were, um, Greek text evidence that, that there was, massive. Uh, but if you, can, if you can say that social trauma is constructed and, oh, look, they didn't make, this was not a big deal for people, let's move on. And, you know, that's used, you know, by imperial powers even today, right? Um, and so, anyway, it, it, it's just something that I wrestle with um, a lot because I, I also know, on the other hand, that you know, trauma can be transmitted mm-hmm. historically and socially to people who didn't experience it. And some events are kind of chosen as, I don't know how to put this exactly, but like the tradition will decide, well, this, this experience we're going to canonize as a collective trauma mm-hmm. and others were, were sort of not. Yes, because uh, it depends on the on the ideological and, and historical context. I mean, yeah. you know, psychic trauma is one thing, cultural trauma is another. Whether right. you whether you want to project a psychic trauma as cultural trauma is another thing, but it will depend on the specificities of the situation, right? Yeah. So how were these remembered differently in the centuries to come? Because you addressed this, uh, I think, at the end mm-hmm. too. Um, they're, they're, yeah. Well, uh, the, the the two now songs put forward to different narratives uh, of to to different trauma claims, let's say. Uh, the first song, Weishotzinkayot, uh, considers the fall of Tenochtitlan uh, as a result uh, of the abandonment of the city by its god. Um, the supreme god of Tenochtitlan uh, was Huitzilopochtli. Uh, now, divine abandonment um, here in this song is, is loosely linked to human negligence as opposed to the Greek poem, uh, which uh, put the, the, the blame on the Turks and uh, on, on, on the saints and angels who, who abandoned the city. So mm. in the now, in Weshotzinkayot, the song seems to suggest that the god abandoned Tenochtitlan because the Meshiga did not follow the appropriate rituals. So as in the Greek poem, um, uh, we have the narrative of the abandonment of the city, which obviously takes us all the way back to the, the, the city laments uh, from ancient Mesopotamia. Mm. Um, but as I've said, contrary to the Greek poem, uh, people here are not entirely innocent. Uh, in the Nawa belief system, um, there were disorders and illnesses when, when rituals were breached. Uh, in fact, pre-Columbian warfare and sacrificial um, uh, rituals uh, dreaded by the Spaniards, obviously, uh, sacrificial rituals in Tenochtitlan uh, were meant to provide blood for the nourishment of the gods, especially the sun, which which Lopochtli. Um, so the Mexica were partly responsible for the calamity in the song, uh, but not because uh, the Christian god punished them for their sins, um, for their paganism. This would 
have been the Spanish narrative, mm-hmm. instead God punished them because they may have breached rituals. A- and this is this is actually a beautifully emotive uh, example of cultural hybridity that we've been talking about uh, and surviving indigenous worldviews um, in, in these songs. Uh, now, the second uh, song, which is called Tlaxcaltecayot, uh, has a different story to tell. Uh, uh, there, the responsibility uh, for the fall of the city uh, falls squarely on the Aztecs and the Mexicas pre-conquest antagonists, uh, among them the enemy cities of Tlaxcala and Huexotzinco, who eventually sided, we know, with uh, the Spaniards, with Cortes, to bring down the Mexica Empire, the Aztec Empire. Uh, so, although the Spaniards do appear in the song, Interestingly, the spotlight of responsibility really falls on Cortes' indigenous allies. So this song actually confirms that the conquest was seen as a rebellion of indigenous city-states against a much-hated empire, the Mexica Empire. Right, which would make that narrative less conducive to a sort of modern uh, national ideological narrative. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the the, the late Byzantine or slash Greek one is much more conducive to mm-hmm. sort of modern. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, any final thoughts on all this fascinating material? I'm so happy you brought these traditions into dialogue. Anything you want to sort of end, uh, leave the readers with? Well, I, I think all these texts, I mean, the poem and the songs, offer us a wonderful opportunity to understand how cultural trauma is, is constructed, but also, or trauma claim at least, is, is contrasted, co- constructed, sorry, but also how the maintenance of that cultural trauma or, or its retrospective resuscitation, if you want, mm. uh, depend very much on shifting historical and ideological contexts. Um, also, I think the afterlife of this text could tell us a, a thing or two about our own present as well, or about, you know, you, you just referred to nationalism. Uh, we've seen, I mean, I've said that colonial Nawas um, were not particularly interested in lamenting the loss of the empire for, you know, for, for specific reasons. Um, this, of course, uh, does not mean that the fall of Tenochtitlan um, could not have been retrospectively read as a cultural trauma, uh, say, in modern Mexico. Right. But this was not the case. Uh, Why? Because since the the early 19th century, the national cultural narrative of Mexico has been that of um, mestizaje. Uh, The the term mestizo refers to people of mixed uh, uh, indigenous and European origins. So Mm -hmm. mestizaje uh, as a cultural narrative reflects the, the cultural hybridity, if you want, ensuing from the conquest. So with mestizaje, modern Mexico is thought to be born with the conquest, uh, with the encounter of the violent one, obviously, uh, mm. of the indigenous and European cultures, uh, exemplified by Cortes, you know, the union of Cortes, and uh, he's now a translator um, and partner in strategist Malintzin. So if modern Mexico uh, was thought to be born uh, with the conquest, then, of course, the fall of Tenochtitlan uh, could not be read in strongly negative terms as a cultural right. trauma. Um, There's no going back. No, no going back. But the, the Greek, the Greek, uh, uh, the Greek case is is different. Um, um, it actually, couldn't be more different, <laughs> even though. Um, it would be very difficult, of course, to trace the afterlife of the fortunes of the, of the, of the poet's trauma claim in the centuries that followed uh, the events or leading up to the Greek War of Independence, let's say, in the 19th century. Uh, the rich tradition of laments about the fall of Constantinople and the diffusion of prophecies uh, about its liberation in the 200 years following uh, the events uh, mm-hmm. may hint at its relevance, at least, you know, uh, to different generations of, of, of Greek-speaking people. But in any case, in independent Greek, is uh, learned and folk laments about the fall of Constantinople uh, were disseminated through, uh, and this is quite important, through, through school curricula. So in the 20th century, this particular uh, poem, Anakalima, uh, or parts of it, uh, appeared widely and still do uh, in school manuals in Greece and Cyprus, and so do other poems and folk songs uh, about the fall of the city. And of course, I should also perhaps mention that uh, the collection of those folk songs, not the poem, but you know, folk poetry, um, uh, folk poetry was 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 orally transmitted and up to the 19th century when those folk songs were written down, and, and for that reason, or perhaps <laughs> because of that reason, they were actually um, 
um, they overlapped and informed, they were informed by nation building um, in Greece. And of course, they overlapped with Greek identism, um, yeah. uh, the, the great idea or grand vision, uh, um, according to which uh, the borders of the young Hellenic state should be expanded, right, to include Greek speaking people residing in areas uh, perhaps formerly belonging to Byzantium. Uh, and, and for those grand visionaries, Constantinople, not, 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 not Athens should be the, 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 the capital of Hellas. Um, and, and that grand vision came to an end, as we know, at the end of the Greco-Turkish war in 1922 with the so-called um, Asia Minor catastrophe or, or disaster, mm -hmm. uh, which along with the invasion of Cyprus by Turkey half a century later really offered the historical context within which the cultural trauma of the fall of Constantinople could be continuously nurtured. Uh, yeah. So in a way, the fall of Constantinople has now become an arch signifier, uh, an arch trauma, an archetypal trauma, if you want, uh, absorbing all the traumas of the Greeks. So while, while the poem, Anakalima, you can find in the school curricula, the, 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 the Nahuatl songs is, well, you, you, you probably, um, uh, have to, you know, talk to specialists in the field like pre-Columbian, uh, early colonial yeah, studies, yeah, or yeah. perhaps specialized university courses, but not, uh, yeah. Yeah, and and the same narrative is uh, active on the Turkish side as well. Just witnessed two years ago the reconversion of Hagia Sophia back to a mosque, which mm -hmm, of course was, was was pitched by Erdogan as a quote second conquest, as if he's just mm -hmm. reliving the same events over and over again. Exactly. Exactly. Anyway, okay, so I, I think that's a great place to bring this to an end. We reached the twentieth century here. Uh, Eleni, thank you so much, both for coming you, on to the podcast and for doing the very difficult work uh, of bringing these uh, traditions in, in, into, you know, discussing them in tandem in this way. It's really, really hard. And I, I had a lot of fun revisiting some of my pre-Columbian hobbies of days old. Well, um, thank you for your generosity. And I look forward to your next project. Uh, so we'll talk about that when it's ready. <laughs> oh, excellent. Thank you very much. Thank All right, you. Eleni, take care. <laughs> you too.